0: Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis, Chapter 15 With none of the profane observations on medical peddlers which had annoyed DiGamma Pi, Martin studied the catalogue of the New Idea Instrument and Furniture Company of Jersey City. It was a handsome thing. On the glossy green cover, in red and black, were the portraits of the president, a round, quippish man who loved all young physicians— the general manager, a cadaverous scholarly man who surely gave all his laborious nights and days to the advancement of science, and the vice president, Martin's former preceptor, Dr. Roscoe Geek, who had a lively, eyeglassed, forward-looking modernity all his own. The cover also contained, in surprisingly small space, a quantity of poetic prose, and the inspiring promise, Dr., Don't be buffaloed by the unenterprising. No reason why you should lack the equipment which impresses patients, makes practice easy, and brings honor and riches. All the high-class supplies which distinguish the leaders of the profession from the dubs are within your reach right now by the famous New Idea financial system. Just a little down and the rest free— out of the increased earnings which new idea apparatus will bring you. Above, in a border of laurel wreaths and ionic capitals, was the challenge, Sing not the glory of soldiers or explorers or statesmen, for who can touch the doctor, wise, heroic, uncontaminated by common greed? Gentlemen, we salute you humbly, and herewith offer you the most up-to-the-jiffy catalog ever presented by any surgical supply house. The back cover, though it was less glorious with green and red, was equally arousing. It presented illustrations of the Bindeldorf tonsillectomy outfit, and of an electric cabinet, with the demand, Doctor, are you sending your patients off to specialists for tonsil removal, or to sanatoriums for electric, etc. treatment? If so, you are losing the chance to show yourself one of the distinguished powers in the domain of medical advancement in your locality, and losing a lot of big fees. Don't you want to be a high class practitioner? Here's the open door. The Bindeldorf outfit is not only useful, but exquisitely beautiful, adorns and gives class to any office. We guarantee that by the installation of a Bindeldorf outfit and a new idea panaceatic electrotherapeutic cabinet, see details on page thirty four and ninety seven, you can increase your income from a thousand to ten thousand annually, and please patients more than by the most painstaking plugging. When the great call sounds, doctor, and it's time for you to face your reward, Will you be satisfied by a big masonic funeral and tributes from grateful patients if you have failed to lay up provision for the kiddies and faithful wife who has shared your tribulations you may drive through blizzard and august heat and go down into the purple shadowed veil of sorrow and wrestle with the ebon cloaked powers of darkness for the lives of your patients but that heroism is incomplete without modern progress to be obtained by the use of a Bindeldorf tonsillectomy outfit, and the new idea panaceatic cabinet, to be obtained on small payment down, rest on easiest terms known in history of medicine. Part 2 This poetry of passion Martin neglected, for his opinion of poetry was like his opinion of electric cabinets but excitedly he ordered a steel stand, a sterilizer, flasks, test tubes, and a white enameled mechanism with enchanting levers and gears, which transformed it from examining chair to operating table. He yearned over the picture of a centrifuge, while Leora was admiring the stunning seven-piece reception-room fumed oak set, upholstered in genuine Barcelona longwear leatherette, "'will give your office the class and distinction "'of any high-grade New York specialists.' "'Ah, oh, let them sit on plain chairs,' Martin grunted. "'In the attic, Mrs. Tozer found enough seedy chairs "'for the reception room, and an ancient bookcase, "'which, when Leora had lined it with pink-fringed paper, "'became a noble instrument cabinet. "'Till the examining chair should arrive, "'Martin would use Wise's lumpy couch.' and Leora busily covered it with white oilcloth. Behind the front room of the tiny office building were two cubicles, formerly bedroom and kitchen. Martin made them into consultation room and laboratory. Whistling, he sawed out racks for the glassware and turned the oven of a discarded kerosene stove into a hot-air oven for sterilizing glassware. But understand, Lee. I'm not going to go monkeying with any scientific research. I'm through with all that. Leora smiled innocently. While he worked, she sat outside in the long, wild grass, sniffing the prairie breeze, her hands about her ankles. But every quarter hour, she had to come in and admire. Mr. Tozer brought home a package at supper time. The family opened it, babbling. After supper, Martin and Leora hastened with the new treasure to the office and nailed it in place. It was a plate-glass sign. On it, gold letters. M. Aerosmith, M.D. They looked up, arms about each other, squealing softly, and in reverence he grunted, There, by Jiminy. They sat on the back stoop, exulting in freedom from tozers. Along the railroad bumped a freight train with a cheerful clanking. The fireman waved to them from the engine, a brakeman from the platform of the red caboose. After the train there was silence, but for the crickets and a distant frog. "'I've never been so happy,' he murmured. Part three. He had brought from Zenith his own Oxner Surgical Case— As he laid out the instruments, he admired the thin, sharp, shining bistury, the strong tenatome, the delicate, curved needles. With them was a dental forceps. Dad Silva had warned his classes. Don't forget, the country doctor often has to be not only physician, but dentist, yes, and priest, divorce lawyer, blacksmith, chauffeur, and road engineer. And if you are too lily-handed for those trades— Don't get out of sight of a trolley line and a beauty parlor. And the first patient whom Martin had in the new office, the second patient in Wheatsylvania, was Nils Cragg, the carpenter, roaring with an ulcerated tooth. This was a week before the glass sign was up, and Martin rejoiced to Leora, Begun already. You'll see him tumbling in now. They did not see them tumbling in. For ten days Martin tinkered at his hot-air oven or sat at his desk, reading and trying to look busy. His first joy passed into fretfulness, and he could have yelped at the stillness, the inactivity. Late one afternoon, when he was in a melancholy way preparing to go home, into the office stamped a grizzled Swedish farmer, who grumbled, "'Doc, I got a fish-hook caught in my thumb, and it's all swole.' To Aerosmith, intern in Zenith General Hospital, with its outpatient clinic treating hundreds a day, the dressing of a hand had been less important than borrowing a match. But to Dr. Aerosmith of Wheatsylvania, it was a hectic operation, and the farmer a person remarkable and very charming. Martin shook his left hand violently and burbled, "'Now if there's anything, you just phone me. You just phone me.' There had been, he felt, a rush of admiring patience sufficient to justify them in the one thing Leora and he longed to do, the thing about which they whispered at night, the purchase of a motor car for his country calls. They had seen the car at Fraser's store. It was a Ford, five years old, with torn upholstery, a gummy motor, and springs made by a blacksmith who had never made springs before. Next to the chugging of the gas engine at the creamery, the most familiar sound in Wheatsylvania was Fraser's closing the door of his Ford. He banged it flatly at the store, and usually he had to shut it thrice again before he reached home. But to Martin and Leora, when they had tremblingly bought the car and three new tires and a horn, it was the most impressive vehicle on earth. It was their own They could go when and where they wished. During his summer at a Canadian hotel, Martin had learned to drive the Ford station wagon, but it was Leora's first venture. Bert had given her so many directions that she had refused to drive the family overland. When she first sat at the steering wheel, when she moved the hand throttle with her little finger and felt in her own hands all this power sorcery, enabling her to go as fast as she might desire, within distinct limits. She transcended human strength. She felt that she could fly like the wild goose. And then, in a stretch of sand, she killed the engine. Martin became the demon driver of the village. To ride with him was to sit holding your hat, your eyes closed, waiting for death. Apparently he accelerated for corners, to make them more interesting. The sight of anything on the road ahead, from another motor to a yellow pup, stirred in him a frenzy which could be stilled only by going up and passing it. The village adored. The young dock is quite some driver, all right. They waited, with amiable interest, to hear that he had been killed it is possible that half of the first dozen patients who drifted into his office came because of awe at his driving. The rest because there was nothing serious the matter, and he was nearer than Dr. Hesslink at Groningen. Part four, With his first admirers, he developed his first enemies. When he met the Norblums on the street, and in Wheatsylvania, it is difficult not to meet everyone on the street, every day. They glared. Then he antagonized Pete Yeska. Pete conducted what he called a drug store, devoted to the sale of candy, soda water, patent medicines, flypaper, magazines, washing machines, and Ford accessories. Yet Pete would have starved if he had not been postmaster also. He alleged that he was a licensed pharmacist, but he so mangled prescriptions that Martin burst into the store and addressed him piously. "'You young docks make me sick,' said Pete. "'I was putting up prescriptions when you was in the cradle. "'The old doc that used to be here sent everything to me. "'My way of doing things suits me, "'and I don't figure on changing it for you or any other half-baked young string bean.' "'Thereafter, Martin had to purchase drugs from St. Paul.' overcrowd his tiny laboratory, and prepare his own pills and ointments, looking in a homesick way at the rarely used test tubes and the dust gathering on the bell glass of his microscope, while Pete Yeska joined with the Norblums in whispering, This new doc here ain't any good. You better stick to Hesselink. Part 5 So blank, so idle, had been the week, that when he heard the telephone at the Tozer's, at three in the morning, he rushed to it as though he were awaiting a love message. A hoarse and shaky voice. I want to speak to the doctor. Yeah, it's the doctor speaking. This is Henry Novak, four miles northeast, on the Leopolis Road. My little girl, Mary, she has a terrible sore throat— I think maybe it is croup, and she looks awful, and—could you come right away? You bet. Be right there. Four miles. He would do it in eight minutes. He dressed swiftly, dragging his worn brown tie together, while Leora beamed over the first night call. He furiously cranked the ford, banged and clattered past the station, and into the wheat prairie. When he had gone six miles by the speedometer— Slackening at each rural box to look for the owner's name, he realized that he was lost. He ran into a farm driveway and stopped under the willows, his headlight on a heap of dented milk cans, broken harvester wheels, cordwood, and bamboo fishing poles. From the barn dashed a woolly, anomalous dog, barking viciously, leaping up at the car. A frowzy head protruded from a ground-floor window— "'What you want,' screamed a Scandinavian voice. "'This is the doctor. Where does Henry Novak live?' "'Oh, the doctor? Dr. Hesselink?' "'No, Dr. Aerosmith.' "'Oh, Dr. Aerosmith. From Wheatsylvania?' "'Um, well, you went right near his place. "'You just turned back one mile and turned to the right by the brick schoolhouse, "'and it's about forty rods up the road, "'the house with a cement silo.' "'Somebody sick by Henry's?' "'Yeah, yeah, the girl's got croup. Thanks. "'Just keep to the right. You can't miss it.' "'Probably no one who has listened to the dire "'you can't miss it' has ever failed to miss it.'" He rattled up the road, took the corner that side of the schoolhouse instead of this, ran half a mile along a boggy trail between pastures, and stopped at a farmhouse. In the surprising fall of silence, cows were to be heard feeding, and a white horse, startled in the darkness, raised its head to wonder at him. He had to arouse the house with wild squawkings of his horn, and an irate farmer who bellowed, "'Who's there? I've got a shotgun!' sent him back to the country road. It was forty minutes from the time of the telephone call when he rushed into the furrowed driveway and saw on the doorstep— "'Against the lamplight, a stooped man who called, "'The doctor, this is Novak.' "'He found the child in a newly finished bedroom "'of white plastered walls and pale varnished pine. "'Only an iron bed, a straight chair, a chromo of St. Anne, "'and a shadeless hand-lamp on a rickety stand "'broke the staring shininess of the apartment, "'a recent extension of the farmhouse.' A heavy-shouldered woman was kneeling by the bed. As she lifted her wet, red face, Novak urged, ''Don't cry now. He's here.'' And to Martin, ''The little one is pretty bad, but we done all we could for her. Last night and tonight we steam her throat, and we put her here in our own bedroom.'' Mary was a child of seven or eight. Martin found her lips and fingertips blue but in her face, no flush. In the effort to expel her breath, she writhed into terrifying knots, then coughed up saliva dotted with grayish specks. Martin worried as he took out his clinical thermometer and gave it a professional-looking shake. It was, he decided, laryngeal croup of diphtheria. Probably diphtheria. No time now for bacteriological examination, for cultures and leisurely precision, Silva the healer bulked in the room, crowding out Gottlieb the inhuman perfectionist. Martin leaned nervously over the child on the tousled bed, absent-mindedly trying her pulse again and again. He felt helpless without the equipment of Zenith General, its nurses, and Angus Stewart's sure advice. He had a sudden respect for the lone country doctor. He had to make a decision, irrevocable, perhaps perilous. He would use diphtheria antitoxin, but certainly he could not obtain it from Pete Yeskas in Wheatsylvania. Leopolis? Hustle up and get me Blasner, the druggist at Leopolis, on the phone, he said to Novak, as calmly as he could contrive. He pictured Blasner driving through the night, respectfully bringing the antitoxin to the doctor. While Novak bellowed into the farm-line telephone in the dining room, Martin waited, waited, staring at the child. Mrs. Novak waited for him to do miracles. The child's tossing and hoarse gasping became horrible. And the glaring walls, the glaring lines of pale yellow woodwork, hypnotized him into sleepiness. It was too late for anything short of antitoxin or tracheotomy. Should he operate, cut into the windpipe that she might breathe? He stood and worried. He drowned in sleepiness and shook himself awake. He had to do something, with the mother kneeling there, gaping at him, beginning to look doubtful. Get some hot clothes, towels, napkins— and keep him around her neck. I wish to God he'd get that telephone call, he fretted. As Mrs. Novak, padding on thick, slippered feet, brought in the hot cloths, Novak appeared with a blank. Nobody's sleeping at the drugstore, and Blasner's house line is out of order. Then listen, I'm afraid this may be serious. I've got to have antitoxin. Going to drive to Leopolis and get it. You keep up these hot applications and... wish we had an atomizer. And room ought to be moister. Got an alcohol stove? Keep some water boiling in here. No use of medicine. Be right back. He drove the twenty-four miles to Leopolis in thirty-seven minutes. Not once did he slow down for a crossroad. He defied the curves, the roots thrusting out into the road though always one dark spot in his mind feared a blowout and a swerve. The speed, the casting away of all caution, wrought in him a high exultation, and it was blessed to be in the cool air and alone, after the strain of Mrs. Novak's watching. In his mind all the while was the page in Osler regarding diphtheria, the very picture of the words— In severe cases, the first dose should be from 8,000—no, oh, yes, from 10,000 to 15,000 units. He regained confidence. He thanked the god of science for antitoxin and for the gas motor. It was, he decided, a race with death. I'm going to do it, going to pull it off and save that poor kid, he rejoiced he approached a grade crossing and hurled toward it, ignoring possible trains. He was aware of a devouring whistle, saw sliding light on the rails, and brought up sharp. Past him, ten feet from his front wheels, flung the Seattle Express like a flying volcano. The fireman was stoking, and even in the thin clearness of coming dawn, the glow from the firebox was appalling on the underside of the rolling smoke." Instantly, the apparition was gone, and Martin sat trembling, hands trembling on the little steering wheel, foot trembling like St. Vitus's dance on the brake. That was an awful close thing, he muttered, and thought of a widowed Leora abandoned to Tozers. But the vision of the Novak child, struggling for each terrible breath, overrode all else. Hell, I've killed the engine, he groaned. He vaulted over the side, cranked the car, and dashed into Leopolis. To Crimson County, Leopolis, with its four thousand people, was a metropolis, but in the pinched stillness of the dawn it was a tiny graveyard—main street a sandy expanse, the low shops desolate as huts. He found one place astir—in the bleak office of the Dakota Hotel, The night clerk was playing poker with the bus driver and the town policeman. They wondered at his hysterical entrance. Dr. Aerosmith from Wheatsylvania. Kid dying from diphtheria. Where's Blasner live? Jump in my car and show me. The constable was a lanky old man, his vest swinging open over a collarless shirt, his trousers in folds, his eyes resolute. He guided Martin to the home of the druggist, He kicked the door, then, standing with his lean and bristly visage, upraised in the cold early light, he bawled, "'Ed! Hey you Ed! Come out of it!' Ed Blassner grumbled from the upstairs window. To him, death and furious doctors had small novelty. While he drew on his trousers and coat, he was to be heard discoursing to his drowsy wife on the woes of druggists— and the desirability of moving to Los Angeles and going into real estate. But he did have diphtheria antitoxin in his shop, and 16 minutes after Martin's escape from being killed by a train, he was speeding to Henry Novak's. Part 6 The child was still alive when he came brusquely into the house. All the way back, he had seen her dead and stiff. He grunted, thank God, and angrily called for hot water. He was no longer the embarrassed cub doctor, but the wise and heroic physician who had won the race with death, and in the peasant eyes of Mr. Novak, in Henry's nervous obedience, he read his power. Swiftly, smoothly, he made intravenous injection of the antitoxin, and stood expectant. The child's breathing did not at first vary— as she choked in the labor of expelling her breath. There was a gurgle, a struggle in which her face blackened, and she was still. Martin peered, incredulous. Slowly, the Novaks began to glower, shaky hands at their lips. Slowly, they knew the child was gone. In the hospital, Death had become indifferent and natural to Martin. He had said to Angus, he had heard nurses say to one another, quite cheerfully, well, 57 has just passed out. Now he raged with desire to do the impossible. She couldn't be dead. He'd do something. All the while he was groaning, I should have operated. I should have. So insistent was the thought but for a time he did not realize that Mrs. Novak was clamoring. She's dead? Dead? He nodded, afraid to look at the woman. You killed her with that needle thing, and not even tell us so we could call the priest? He crawled past her lamentations and the man's sorrow and drove home, empty of heart. I shall never practice medicine again, he reflected. I'm through, he said to Leora. I'm no good. I should have operated. I can't face people when they know about it. I'm through. I'll go get a lab job, Dawson Hunziker, or someplace. Salutary was the tartness with which she protested. You're the most conceited man that ever lived. Do you think you're the only doctor that ever lost a patient? I know you did everything you could. But he went about next day torturing himself. The more tortured when Mr. Tozer whined at supper. Henry Novak and his women was in town today. They say you ought to have saved their girl. Why didn't you give your mind to it and manage to cure her somehow? Oughta tried. Kind of too bad, because the Novaks have a lot of influence with all these pole and hunky farmers." After a night when he was too tired to sleep, Martin suddenly drove to Leopolis. From the Tozers he had heard almost religious praise of Dr. Adam Winter of Leopolis, a man of nearly seventy, the pioneer physician of Crimson County, and to this sage he was fleeing. As he drove he mocked furiously his melodramatic race with death, and he came wearily into the dust-whirling Main Street. Dr. Winter's office was above a grocery, in a long block of bright red brick stores with an Egyptian cornice, of tin. The darkness of the broad hallway was soothing after the prairie heat and incandescence. Martin had to wait till three respectful patients had been received by Dr. Winter, a hoary man with a sympathetic bass voice, before he was admitted to the consultation room. The examining chair was of doubtful superiority to that one used by Doc Vickerson of Elk Mills, and sterilizing was apparently done in a washbowl. But in a corner was an electric therapeutic cabinet with more electrodes and pads than Martin had ever seen. He told the story of the Novaks, and Winter cried, Why, doctor, you did everything you could have and more too. Only thing is, next time, In a crucial case, you better call some older doctor in consultation. Not that you need his advice, but it makes a hit with the family. It divides the responsibility and keeps him from going around criticizing. I, uh, I frequently have the honor of being called by some of my younger colleagues. Just wait. I'll phone the editor of the Gazette and give him an item about the case. When he had telephoned, Dr. Winter shook hands ardently he indicated his electric cabinet. Got one of those things yet? Ought to, my boy. Don't know as I use it very often, except with the cranks that haven't anything the matter with them. But say, it would surprise you how it impresses folks. Well, doctor, welcome to Crimson County. Married? Won't you and your wife come take dinner with us some Sunday noon? Mrs. Winter will be real pleased to meet you. And if I ever can be of service to you in a consultation, I only charge a very little more than my regular fee, and it looks so well, talking the case over with an older man. Driving home, Martin fell into vain and wicked boasting. You bet I'll stick to it. At worst, I'll never be as bad as that snuffling old fee-splitter." Two weeks after, the Wheatsylvania Eagle, a smeary four-page rag, reported, Our enterprising contemporary, the Leopolis Gazette, had as follows last week to say of one of our townsmen who we recently welcomed to our midst. Dr. M. Aerosmith of Wheatsylvania is being congratulated. We are informed by our valued pioneer local physician, Dr. Adam Winter, by the medical fraternity all through the Pony River Valley there being no occupation or profession more unselfishly appreciative of each other's virtues than the medical gentleman, on the courage and enterprise he recently displayed in addition to his scientific skill. Being called to attend the little daughter of Henry Norwalk of near Delft, the well-known farmer, and finding the little one near death with diphtheria, he made a desperate attempt to save it by himself, bringing antitoxin from Blasner Our ever popular druggist, who had on hand a full and fresh supply. He drove out and back in his gasoline chariot, making the total distance of 48 miles in 79 minutes. Fortunately, our ever alert policeman, Joe Colby, was on the job and helped Dr. Aerosmith find Mr. Blasner's bungalow on Red River Avenue, and this gentleman rose from bed and hastened to supply the doctor with the needed article. But unfortunately, the child was already too low to be saved, but it is by such incidents of pluck and quick thinking as well as knowledge which make the medical profession one of our greatest blessings. 2 hours after this was published, Miss Agnes Ingleblad came in for another discussion of her non-existent ailments. And 2 days later, Henry Novak appeared, saying proudly, "Well, doc, we all done what we could for the poor little girl." But I guess I waited too long calling you. The woman is awful cut up. She and I was reading that piece in the Eagle about it. We showed it to the priest. Say, Doc, I wish you'd take a look at my foot. I got kind of a rheumatic pain in the ankle. Chapter sixteen When he had practiced medicine in Wheatsylvania for one year, Martin was an inconspicuous but not discouraged country doctor. In summer, Leora and he drove to the Pony River for picnic suppers and a swim, very noisy, splashing, and immodest. Through autumn he went duck-hunting with Bert Tozer, who became nearly tolerable when he stood at sunset on a pass between two sloughs. And with winter, isolating the village in a sun-blank desert of snow, they had sleigh rides, card parties, sociables at the churches. When Martin's flock turned to him for help, their need and their patient obedience made them beautiful. Once or twice he lost his temper with jovial villagers, who bountifully explained to him that he was less aged than he might have been. Once or twice he drank too much whiskey at poker parties in the back room of the cooperative store. But he was known as reliable, skillful, and honest. And on the whole he was rather less distinguished than Alec Ingleblad the barber less prosperous than Nils Cragg, the carpenter, and less interesting to his neighbors than the Finnish garage man. Then one accident and one mistake made him famous for full twelve miles about. He had gone fishing in the spring. As he passed a farmhouse, a woman ran out shrieking that her baby had swallowed a thimble and was choking to death. Martin had for surgical kit a large jackknife he sharpened it on the farmer's oilstone, sterilized it in the tea kettle, operated on the baby's throat, and saved its life. Every newspaper in the Pony River Valley had a paragraph, and before this sensation was over, he cured Miss Agnes Ingleblad of her desire to be cured. She had achieved cold hands and a slow circulation, and he was called at midnight. He was soggily sleepy— after two country drives on muddy roads, and in his torpor he gave her an overdose of strychnine, which so shocked and stimulated her that she decided to be well. It was so violent a change that it made her more interesting than being an invalid. People had of late taken remarkably small pleasure in her symptoms. She went about praising Martin, and all the world said— I hear this Doc Aerosmith is the only fellow Agnes ever doctored with that's done her a mite of good. He gathered a practice, small, sound, and in no way remarkable. Leora and he moved from the Tozers to a cottage of their own, with a parlor-dining room which displayed a nickel stove on bright new, pleasant-smelling linoleum, and a golden oak sideboard with a souvenir match holder from Lake Minnetonka. He bought a small Rentkin Ray outfit, and he was made a director of the Tozer Bank. He became too busy to long for his days of scientific research, which had never existed, and Leora sighed. It's fierce being married. I did expect I'd have to follow you out on the road and be a hobo, but I never expected to be a pillar of the community. Well, I'm too lazy to look up a new husband. Only I warn you— When you become the Sunday school superintendent, you needn't expect me to play the organ and smile at the cute jokes you make about Willie's not learning his golden text. Part 2 So did Martin stumble into respectability. In the autumn of 1912, when Mr. Debs, Mr. Roosevelt, Mr. Wilson, and Mr. Taft were campaigning for the presidency, when Martin Aerosmith had lived in Wheatsylvania for a year and a half— Bert Tozer became a prominent booster. He returned from the state convention of the modern woodmen of America with notions. Several towns had sent boosting delegations to the convention, and the village of Groningen had turned out a motor procession of five cars, each with an enormous pennant Groningen for white men and black dirt. Bert came back clamoring that every motor in town must carry a Wheatsylvania pennant. He had bought thirty of them, and they were on sale at the bank at seventy-five cents apiece. This, Bert explained to everyone who came into the bank, was exactly cost price, which was within eleven cents of the truth. He came galloping at Martin, demanding that he be the first to display a pennant. "'I don't want one of those fool things flopping from my bus,' protested Martin. "'What's the idea, anyway?' "'What's the idea?' To advertise your own town, of course. What is there to advertise? Do you think you're going to make strangers believe Wheatsylvania is a metropolis like New York or Jimtown by hanging a dusty rag behind a second-hand tin Lizzie? You never did have any patriotism. Let me tell you, Mart, if you don't put on a banner, I'll see to it that everybody in town notices it. While the other rickety cars of the village announced to the world— or at least to several square miles of the world, that Wheatsylvania was the wonder town of central North Dakota, Martin's clattering ford went bare. And when his enemy Norblum remarked, I like to see a fellow have some public spirit and appreciate the place he gets his money out of, the citizenry nodded and spat, and began to question Martin's fame as a worker of miracles. Part three. He had intimates the barber the editor of the eagle the garage man to whom he talked comfortably of hunting and the crops and with whom he played poker perhaps he was too intimate with them it was the theory of crinson county that it was quite all right for a young professional man to take a timely drink providing he kept it secret and made up for it by yearning over the clergy of the neighborhood but with the clergy martin was brief and his drinking and poker he never concealed. If he was bored by the United Brethren Minister's discourse on doctrine, on the wickedness of movies, and the scandalous pay of pastors, it was not at all because he was a distant and supersensitive young man, but because he found more savor in the garage man's salty remarks on the art of remembering to ante in poker. Through all the state there were celebrated poker players— Rustic-looking men with stolid faces, men who sat in shirt-sleeves chewing tobacco, men whose longest remark was, By me, and who delighted to plunder the gilded and condescending traveling salesman. When there was news of a big game on, the county sports dropped in silently and went to work. The sewing-machine agent from Leopolis, the undertaker from Vanderhides Grove, the bootlegger from St. Luke— the red fat man from Melody who had no known profession. Once, still do men tell of it gratefully, up and down the valley, they played for seventy-two unbroken hours, in the office of the Wheatsylvania garage. It had been a livery stable, it was littered with robes and long whips, and the smell of horses mingled with the reek of gasoline. The players came and went and sometimes they slept on the floor for an hour or two, but they were never less than four in the game. The stink of cheap, feeble cigarettes and cheap, powerful cigars hovered about the table like a malign spirit. The floor was scattered with stubs, matches, old cards, and whiskey bottles. Among the warriors were Martin, Alec Engelblad the barber, and a highway engineer, all of them stripped to flannel undershirts, not moving for hour on hour, ruffling their cards, eyes squinting and vacant. When Bert Tozer heard of the affair, he feared for the good fame of Wheatsylvania, and to everyone he gossiped about Martin's evil ways and his own patience. Thus it happened that while Martin was at the height of his prosperity and credit as a physician, along the Pony River Valley sinuated the whispers that he was a gambler, "'that he was a drinking man, that he never went to church. "'And all the godly enjoyed mourning. "'Too bad to see a decent young man like that going to the dogs.' "'Martin was as impatient as he was stubborn. "'He resented the well-meant greetings. "'You ought to leave a little hooch for the rest of us to drink, Doc. "'Or, I suppose you're too busy playing poker to drive out to the house and take a look at the woman.' He was guilty of an absurd and boyish tactlessness when he heard Norblum observing to the postmaster. A fellow that calls himself a doctor just because he had luck with that fool Agnes Ingleblad. He had not ought to go getting drunk and disgracing. Martin stopped. Norblum, you talking about me? The storekeeper turned slowly. I got more important things to do and talk about you, he cackled. As Martin went on, he heard laughter. He told himself that these villagers were generous, that their snooping was in part an affectionate interest, and inevitable in a village where the most absorbing event of the year was the United Brethren Sunday School picnic on 4th of July. But he could not rid himself of twitchy discomfort at their unending and maddeningly detailed comments on everything. He felt as though the lightest word he said in his consultation room would be megaphoned from flapping ear to ear all down the country roads. He was contented enough in gossiping about fishing with the barber, nor was he condescending to meteorologicomania, but except for Leora, he had no one with whom he could talk of his work. Angus Dewar had been cold, but Angus had his teeth into every change of surgical technique, and he was an acrid debater. Martin saw that, unless he struggled, not only would he harden into timid morality under the pressure of the village, but be fixed in a routine of prescriptions and bandaging. He might find a stimulant in Dr. Hesselink of Groningen. He had seen Hesselink only once, but everywhere he heard of him as the most honest practitioner in the valley. On impulse, Martin drove down to call on him. "'Dr. Hesselink was a man of forty, ruddy, tall, broad-shouldered. "'You knew immediately that he was careful and that he was afraid of nothing, "'however much he might lack in imagination. "'He received Martin with no vast ebullience, and his stare said, "'Well, what do you want? I'm a busy man.' "'Doctor,' Martin chattered, "'do you find it hard to keep up with medical developments?' "'No.' Read the medical journals. Well, don't you... Gosh, I don't want to get sentimental about it, but don't you find that without contact with the big guns, you get mentally lazy, sort of lacking in inspiration? I do not. There's enough inspiration for me in trying to help the sick. To himself, Martin was protesting, All right, if you don't want to be friendly, go to the devil. But he tried again. I know but for the game of the thing, for the pleasure of increasing medical knowledge. How can you keep up if you don't have anything but routine practice among a lot of farmers? Aerosmith, I may do you an injustice, but there's a lot of you young practitioners who feel superior to the farmers, that are doing their own jobs better than you are. You think that if you were only in the city with libraries and medical meetings and everything, you'd develop. Well, I don't know of anything to prevent your studying at home. You consider yourself so much better educated than these rustics. But I notice you say, gosh, and big guns, and that sort of thing. How much do you read? Personally, I'm extremely well satisfied. My people pay me an excellent living wage. They appreciate my work, and they honor me by election to the school board. I find that a good many of these farmers think a lot harder and squarer than the swells I meet in the city. Well, I don't see any reason for feeling superior, or lonely, either. Hell, I don't, Martin rumbled. As he drove back, he raged at Hesselink's superiority about not feeling superior. But he stumbled into uncomfortable meditation. It was true he was half educated. He was supposed to be a college graduate, but he knew nothing of economics, nothing of history, nothing of music or painting. Except in hasty bolting for examinations, he had read no poetry save that of Robert Service. And the only prose besides medical journalism at which he looked nowadays was the baseball and murder news in the Minneapolis papers and Wild West stories in the magazines. He reviewed the intelligent conversation which, in the desert of Wheatsylvania, he believed himself to have conducted at Mohallis. He remembered that to Cliff Clausen it had been pretentious to use any phrase which was not as colloquial and as smutty as the speech of a truck driver, and that his own discourse had differed from Cliff's largely in that it had been less fantastic and less original. He could recall nothing save the philosophy of Max Gottlieb occasional scoldings of Angus Dewar, one out of ten among Madeline Fox's digressions, and the counsels of Dad Silva, which was above the level of Alec Engelblad's barbershop. He came home hating Hesselink, but by no means loving himself. He fell upon Leora, and, to her placid agreement, announced that they were, going to get educated, if it kills us. He went at it as he had gone at bacteriology. He read European history aloud at Leora, who looked interested, or at least forgiving. He borrowed a volume of Conrad from the village editor, and afterward, as he drove the prairie roads, he was marching into jungle villages—sun helmets, orchids, lost temples of obscene and dog-faced deities, secret and sun-scarred rivers. He was conscious of his own mean vocabulary. It cannot be said that he became immediately and conspicuously articulate, yet it is possible that in those long, intense evenings of reading with Leora, he advanced a step or two toward the tragic enchantments of Max Gottlieb's world. Enchanting sometimes, and tragic always. But in becoming a schoolboy again he was not so satisfied as Dr. Hesselink. Part 4 Gustav Sondelius was back in America. In medical school, Martin had read of Sondelius, the soldier of science. He held reasonable and lengthy degrees, but he was a rich man and eccentric, and neither toiled in laboratories nor had a decent office and a home and a lacy wife. He roamed the world fighting epidemics and founding institutions and making inconvenient speeches and trying new drinks. He was a Swede by birth, a German by education, a little of everything by speech, and his clubs were in London, Paris, Washington, and New York. He had been heard of from Batum and Fuzhou, from Milan and Betuanaland, from Antofagasta and Cape Romansoff. Manson on Tropical Diseases mentioned Sandalius's admirable method of killing rats with hydrocyanic acid gas, and the sketch once mentioned his atrocious system in Baccarat. Gustav Sondelius shouted, in high places and low, that most diseases could be and must be wiped out, that tuberculosis, cancer, typhoid, the plague, influenza— were an invading army against which the world must mobilize—literally—that public health authorities must supersede generals and oil kings. He was lecturing through America, and his exclamatory assertions were syndicated in the press. Martin sniffed at most newspaper articles touching on science or health, but Sondalius's violence caught him, and suddenly he was converted, and it was an important thing for him that conversion. He told himself that however he might relieve the sick, essentially he was a businessman, in rivalry with Dr. Winter of Leopolis and Dr. Hessleek of Groningen, that though they might be honest, honesty and healing were less their purpose than making money, that to get rid of avoidable disease and produce a healthy population would be the worst thing in the world for them, and that they must all be replaced by public health officials. Like all ardent agnostics, Martin was a religious man. Since the death of his Gottlieb cult, he had unconsciously sought a new passion, and he found it now in Gustav Sandelius's war on disease. Immediately he became as annoying to his patients as he had once been to Di Gamma Pi he informed the farmers at Delft that they had no right to have so much tuberculosis. This was infuriating, because none of their rights as American citizens was better established, or more often used, than the privilege of being ill. They fumed, Who does he think he is? We call him in for doctoring, not for bossing. Why, the damn fool said we ought to burn down our houses, said we were committing a crime if we had the con here. Won't stand for nobody talking to me like that. Everything became clear to Martin. Too clear. The nation must make the best physicians autocratic officials at once, and that was all there was to it. As to how the officials were to become perfect executives and how people were to be persuaded to obey them, he had no suggestions but only a beautiful faith. At breakfast he scolded, Another idiotic day of writing prescriptions for belly aches that ought never to have happened. If I could only get into the big fight, along with men like Sondalius. It makes me tired. Leora murmured, Yes, darling, I'll promise to be good. I won't have any little belly aches or TB or anything, so please don't lecture me. Even in his irritability, he was gentle. For Leora was with child. Part 5 Their baby was coming in five months. Martin promised to it everything he had missed. He's going to have a real education, he gloated, as they sat on the porch in spring twilight. He'll learn all this literature and stuff. We haven't done much ourselves. Here we are, stuck in this two-by-twice crossroads for the rest of our lives, but maybe we've gone a little beyond our dad's, and he'll go way beyond us. He was worried for all his flamboyance. Leora had undue morning sickness. Till noon she dragged about the house, pea-green and tousled and hollow-faced. He found a sort of maid and came home to help, to wipe the dishes and sweep the front walk. All evening he read to her, not history now, and Henry James, but Mrs. Wiggs of the Cabbage Patch, which both of them esteemed a very fine tale. He sat on the floor by the grubby second-hand couch on which she lay in her weakness. He held her hand and crowed, "'Golly, we—' No, not golly. Well, what can you say except golly? Anyway, some day we'll save up enough money for a couple months in Italy and all those places, all those old narrow streets and old castles. There must be scads of them that are a couple hundred years old or older, and we'll take the boy, even if he turns out to be a girl, darn him. And he'll learn to chatter wop and French and everything like a regular native, and his dad and mother'll be so proud. Oh, we'll be a fierce pair of old birds. We never did have any more morals than a rabbit, either of us. And probably when we're seventy, we'll sit out on the doorstep and smoke pipes and snicker at all the respectable people going by, and tell each other scandalous stories about them till they want to take a shot at us. And our boy, he'll wear a plug hat and have a chauffeur. He won't dare to recognize us. Trained now to the false cheerfulness of the doctor, he shouted, when she was racked and ghastly with the indignity of morning sickness. There, that's fine, old girl. Wouldn't be making a good baby if you weren't sick. Everybody is. He was lying, and he was nervous. Whenever he thought of her dying, he seemed to die with her. Barren of her companionship, there would be nothing he wanted to do. Nowhere to go. What would be the worth of having all the world if he could not show it to her, if she was not there? He denounced nature for her way of tricking human beings, by every gay device of moonlight and white limbs and reaching loneliness, into having babies, then making birth as cruel and clumsy and wasteful as she could. He was abrupt and jerky with patients who called him into the country. With their suffering he was sympathetic as he had never been, for his eyes had opened to the terrible beauty of pain, but he must not go far from Leora's need. Her morning sickness turned into pernicious vomiting. Suddenly, while she was torn and inhuman with agony, he sent for Dr. Hessling and that horrible afternoon when the prairie spring was exuberant outside the windows of the poor iota reeking room, they took the baby from her, dead. Had it been possible, he might have understood Hesselink's success then, have noted that gravity and charm, that pity and sureness, which made people entrust their lives to him. Not cold and blaming was Hesselink now, but an older and wiser brother, very compassionate. Martin saw nothing. He was not a physician. He was a terrified boy, less useful to Hesselink than the dullest nurse. When he was certain that Leora would recover, Martin sat by her bed, coaxing. We'll just have to make up our minds we can never have a baby now, and so I want—oh, I'm no good, and I've got a rotten temper— but to you, I want to be everything, she whispered, scarce to be heard. He would have been such a sweet baby. Oh, I know. I saw him so often because I knew he was going to be like you when you were a baby. She tried to laugh. Perhaps I wanted him because I could boss him. "'I've never had anybody that would let me boss him. "'So if I can't have a real baby, I'll have to bring you up, "'make you a great man that everybody will wonder at, "'like your son Darius. "'Darling, I worried so about your worrying.' "'He kissed her, and for hours they sat together, "'unspeaking, eternally understanding, "'in the prairie twilight.'